Blog Talk Radio. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Consumer's Law Journal on your Law Talk Radio. This is your host, Nick Augustine, the Law Publicist. This show is produced by Law Publicist Communications, a legal marketing and public relations agency serving law firms and business professionals. The production of Your Law Talk Radio is funded by our sponsor donations and advertising. We work hard to bring you in new and pragmatic content on Tuesday and Thursday afternoons at 3 o'clock Central. Today's guest is Michael Brown. He's an employee rights attorney and writer who just completed a screenplay. In Michael's legal practice at the law firm of Peterson, Burke, and Cross, he has represented hundreds of employee clients ranging from entry to executive employees with diverse backgrounds. Michael writes frequently on employee rights issues. Michael's articles are published in the Wisconsin Lawyer Magazine, Marketplace Magazine, and the Employment Rights Section of Newsletter of the Association of Trial Lawyers of America. Michael is also on the faculty of Solo Practice University. Now, today's title is Montage Employee Rights with Michael Brown. Michael will discuss employee rights legal issues and his script titled Montage. Michael also authors the H-1B Legal Rights Attorneys blog, an employee rights resource. Today, Michael shares his new screenplay about the trials of a Main Street lawyer out there helping the little guy. Before we get going, we have some announcements to bring you. We first want to welcome any callers who have uh, neutral and objective counterpoints. Of course, our, our view is politically neutral and objective. Our show here, dial telephone number 917-889-9732, option one to be placed in the caller queue. The telephone number, again, is 917-889-9732. By way of short disclaimer, this is a general information program. The advice shared on this show does not constitute legal advice. Communications with attorneys on this show does not give rise to an attorney-client relationship. Law Talk Radio does not necessarily endorse all the opinions expressed by guests, and finally, callers may remain confidential and rights to this broadcast are reserved. We do have three upcoming events to tell you about. The first two are coming from Chicago Lawyer Magazine, their Off the Pages series. The first event coming on September 20, 2011, is titled Taking Care of Business. Now, the three panels of interest are, number one, how to grow your book of business in a challenging economy. Number two, building a relationship with your in-house lawyers. Number three, motivating and keeping young talent. Now, the panelists presenting at this event are top attorneys and executives with valuable insight. The event will be held from 7.30 to 11 a.m. at the University Club here in Chicago. For more early bird registration or information, please call Olivia Clark at Law Bulletin Publishing for more information. Telephone number 312-644-4033, or you can also email Olivia at O-C-L-A-R-K-E at lbpc.com. Now, MCLE credit is pending for this event and sponsorship opportunities are available. Now, there's a second Off the Pages series offered by Chicago Lawyer Magazine. That's going to be on October 18, 2011. title of that is Taking Diversity Seriously. Here are the following panels. Number one, oh, being a woman in this legal industry. How do you navigate the challenging waters? And number two, a detailed look at local diversity statistics. In addition, Chicago Lawyer presents keynote speaker Aaron Reeves of NextGens. Reeves is a Chicago lawyer columnist and diversity expert who will present, quote, a status report on diversity, end quote. This event will also take place from 7.30 to 11 a.m. at the University Club in Chicago. Again, contact Ms. Olivia Clark at Law Bulletin for more information. 312-644-4033. Now, our final announcement. If you are going to be traveling through DuPage County on September 22, 2011, you should attend the Collaborative Law Institute of Illinois West Suburban Practice Group's annual open house. 
Come to Carlucci's Restaurant in Lombard at the intersection of I-355 and Butterfield Road from 5 to 7 and meet the attorneys, financial, and mental health professionals who team up to provide collaborative divorce solutions. Guests will include professionals who might want to become collaborative fellows, as well as some of the family law judges from the DuPage Family Law Division and affiliate professionals who are utilized in the collaborative process. For your invitation, please email Ms. Connie Walsh at Connie, C-O-N-N-I-E, at yourfinancialdivorce.com. Again, that's Connie at yourfinancialdivorce.com. Now, as far as today's subject matter, again, we introduced Michael, and we're going to talk a little bit about his screenplay. Let me first read to you the logline for the screenplay. Lawyer Andrew Sykes works for people and opposes large corporations, despite legal and political systems barricades to the little guy. One day, a new client walks into Andrew's office, a doctor, fired by a health conglomerate after he complained of sexual misdeeds. The doctor holds a video that proves his firing was unlawful. To his shock, Andrew deems this a no-win scenario. But a montage of events and other videos fall into frame, aligning the fortunes of Andrew and the doctor, Avent Health, and a disfigured voice from the past, and reveal a path to justice that shall lead through one's own darkest vulnerability. So, we welcome our guest, Michael Brown. Thank you, Nick. So good appreciate to have it. you here. I appreciate your time. Why don't you first, before we talk about the screenplay, which sounds very interesting, of course I love uh, any of my fellow lawyers who write, and I want to call attention to a, a show that we did here on Law Talk Radio some time ago where Antoinette Curtis from La Jolla was here on talking about uh, publishing for lawyers. She is the uh, brains uh, and a lot of the brawn, I think, behind the La Jolla's Writers Conference, a national event, a uh, wonderful event. So always, uh, we always encourage people to write, so we're interested in learning learning from you, Michael, how you got to writing, but first, um, drive us to the point um, in your career where, where you uh, went to law school, how you got so interested in, in helping the little guy out there in consumer law and consumer rights and employees' rights. Oh, sure. I, I think it kind of, I fell into it by accident more than anything, and through a, a career choice, I started work with an, I started work as an attorney in 2002, and then I was laid off uh, from a corporate employer. And in 2004, I kind of wound up with an employee rights law firm, and then I, I loved the practice. It just kind of met uh, was a good match for my my viewpoint on the world, and I just enjoy representing individuals, and uh, that, that basically boils down to it. Could we quickly um, identify what some of this for? To, we have a listening audience full of attorneys, business professionals, non-attorneys, all sorts of different folks out there. So, can you identify some of the issues and things that come up in employee rights? Uh, because you know, in immigration, how all these things filter in. What's your specific uh, niche? Yeah, um, it, where I, it, it's interesting because I employ employment law is actually very very broad, um, you know, and there are a lot of niches within it, some of which I think are kind of core competencies like litigation, work on discrimination complaints, that sort of thing, which I do, uh, federal court work, agency work, well, which I do. And then there are more, you know, kind of niche areas like, for example, uh, class action wage issues, you know, which I, I, I have involvement with. And in, in my practice, I also have involvement with uh, wage issues of legal immigrant workers, H-1B visa workers. I've had a number of claims where those workers are underpaid wages, so there's an intersection there of immigration law and uh, employment law, uh, federal, and then in some instances we'll have co-counsel from different states with some of the larger cases. But um, in the bigger landscape, 
Um, you know, you could have an employee rights attorney that specializes only in representing employee, federal employees with certain types of discrimination complaints. You know, so it could, it could be a real niche area of practice, and some attorneys uh, really do limit to themselves to niches, but um, most will have kind of the core competencies I mentioned and discrimination uh, claims and, and maybe some wage work, although not everyone does that. And then um, unemployment, there's, there's other certain things that come up commonly for most, if not all, employees rights attorneys. So let's also highlight right now that we are going to have you back for a second show that's more specifically focused on H-1B visas. Is that right? Yes. Yes, I look forward to that. Yeah, yeah well, we look forward um, to that, too. There's so much there, There's so much in the world of immigration. There's so much people don't know, especially for employees. We've touched on some of these issues before, but we're always interested in hearing new research, what you've been up to, and, and what's going on. So um, let's lead us into this screenplay. How did you – well, before then, uh, you obviously started writing for some uh, trade journals and, and such. Where, did you always run or write the screenplay, or is this something that uh, came up over time? No, um yeah, it, it came up one day where I, I had kind of a core concept that arose to me, that a central plot point that stuck with and allowed me to write a story from beginning to end. I'd always had an interest in creative writing and going back to like grade school days, I would write stories or songs or poems or just you know different things. But this was the first time where I had a concept for a story that uh, formed a framework, you know, where I could crank it out from beginning to end. And so the first draft of the screenplay was like 190 pages is ridiculous. And then I worked it down to about 140, which is a little over a two-hour movie, and it'll probably get further uh, refined as well, you know, if and when it's, it's taken up for production. Uh, so it's a lot. Of, it's a lot of work. I can tell you this. Going from, especially, you know, you, everyone says, you know, you lawyers write so much. You're long and verbose and windy. It, but when you, <laughs> some of it, and, and I know that in my shift of gears to journalistic writing, I had to really learn to, uh, you know, hack a lot of my sentences off. Thank goodness I had a father with a journalism background to help with that. So I, I really, I feel it's 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 a lot of work, uh, and you must be so proud of your accomplishments thus far. And I hope that uh, this will uh, come to fruition. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the screenplay? Sure. Uh, well, the screenplay was inspired by. I could I could kind of start with a core concept that I mentioned or that I alluded to, but that was um, picturing a, a, our real day legal system from a plaintiff's attorney's perspective. Which I'll be right up front is a biased perspective. You know, I only hear from workers and individuals with gripes against employers. So my sample is is that. You know, I don't hear from employers' gripes about you know, employees' issues and the routine things that are frustrating from that aspect. But from my vantage, representing workers in the legal system, it occurred to me that the, the leverage is just dominant in favor of the employer in all sorts of different areas, and it's getting worse. And so I can, I can be more specific with that. But at, as far as the screenplay, I envisioned what if there was a plaintiff who was a relatively powerful plaintiff and who, of the type I've represented before, you know, with not this story, certainly it's all fiction, but in terms of uh, an executive or in this case a doctor, I've represented doctors, uh, lawyers, um, you know, executive workers. But what if it's a more powerful uh, financially, you know, plaintiff and also reputation-wise and career-wise, and this person is, is fired uh, by a, a big corporation, in this case a healthcare system, this person's fired for doing the right thing, and the corporate opponent just hands them a smoking gun. In this case of this movie, it's a, it's a videotape that shows them admitting, yeah, we violated the law. And, and then the corporation says, go ahead and sue us. And, and they say that, 
And from that point forward, the lawsuit takes place in what I view to be the real-world legal system as it treats plaintiffs, and that would include with all sorts of obstacles ranging from financial disparity against your employment, um, kind of a stacked uh, electoral pro process as far as judges or, or, and so on. And, and you know, how would that plaintiff, this relatively strong plaintiff with the super strong proof, fare in this legal system when they're facing the usual uh, counter and usual and strong countervailing forces? Um, and that that was kind of the central thrust: is what if this guy had the smoking gun? But then the the screenplay is actually more from the protagonist. Of course, he is is the lawyer, you know. And uh, I didn't set out intending to do that, but that's how the story worked out. Because that's mainly my perspective. You know, the, the plaintiff's lawyer in this film is is a protagonist for good and bad, and has good and bad qualities. But this is a person you're supposed to be rooting for, and it's a person whose perspective I know I know best. You know the. The, the person who represents a client and has to deal with the legal system, and a person who has adapted to the tricks of dealing with uh, corporate uh, defense uh, maneuvers, and, and, and I don't mean to say it all in a negative tone, that, that deals with uh, legitimate um, corporate defenses as well as legitimate uh, practical barriers that a corporation can't control, like having more money, you know, not their fault as compared to a plaintiff, but as a plaintiff's lawyer, you've got to deal with that. You have to deal with uh, corporate executives that want to hide, hide information. You have to deal with uh, realities. Um, and I'm sure a defense attorney would have you know, 20 more they could throw right back at me. But again, it's a biased perspective, and I wrote it from the perspective of a plaintiff and a plaintiff's attorney. Well, I can tell you, I, I agree. I, I'd like to see this this movie. I'd like to see this get produced because I think it's a story that's too often untold. Um, I, I've known so many solo practitioners in the past who've gone up against large law firms, have been on the other side of large insurance companies, and those who can just, uh, you know, bury you with uh, discovery, bury you with depositions, you know, jerk the clients around to the point where the lawyer is stuck. And unless that unless that litigant has almost unlimited resources, it really is uh, one of those, you know, one of those stories that you, people don't see and they don't know about from, from time to time. So it's a very good story to tell. And I think it helps people, um, from what you're telling me, understand a little bit more about the legal process because, um, you know, you could have the best lawyer in the world, but it's trying to practice law with two hands tied behind your back sometimes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, and it's a good metaphor. And I, I don't, I don't want to say it's literally accurate, but it's you know, it's closer to that than it is to being on an even playing field, which is what a lot of people assume about the legal system. Is and employees I run to, it's it's uh, really eye-opening to them. They call me up on the phone for an initial phone call. Some of them just assume that. You know, because we have discrimination law or because we have wage law or because we have these federal agencies or state agencies that are in theory there, and they are there, they exist, and they're there to protect workers in theory, what they don't know is that these agencies are largely underfunded, underemployed. The investigations take far longer than they should, and not to fault the agencies. They lack the resource and personnel to, to do it. And it's not a priority of, of our government and our larger system uh, to uh, beef up these resources for the workers and consumers and individuals. And, you know, it, it, some of what I'm going to say is going to run into controversy. In some minds, I would assume that, that think, well, they, they think of examples of frivolous lawsuits and so on. And the McDonald's coffee spill, which, by the way, there's a documentary called Hot Coffee about that lawsuit that is extremely interesting and brings up some points from the plaintiff's point of view that are rarely discussed. But 
as a plaintiff's attorney in large part, I feel, and, and others I've talked to feel like you're, what we're encountering is not just real-world practical op- obstacles, but it's, it's propaganda, for lack of a, a better term, and I, I don't want to embellish, but that's what I feel it is. There's propaganda that misrepresents our legal system to say that it's a system of frivolous plaintiffs run into the bank with their big lawsuits that win money they shouldn't have won, when in reality, plaintiffs start off from a position of loss. You know, they've had an injury and they've lost use or function, physical function, or they've lost money in the case of a fired employee or underpaid, you know, employee underpaid wages. So it's not a lottery. It's someone starting out from a position of loss. They may be right or they may be wrong, but starting from a position of loss, they begin to undertake an uphill climb to, number one, find an attorney who's competent. Number two, find an attorney who does what they really need done on an affordable basis or a contingency basis. And those two things alone weed out a lot of potential claims with people who are injured financially or physically that just never do those things. But then step by step, there's all these different obstacles that you never hear about in the public discourse. The public discourse is mainly dominated by Frivolous lawsuits. Um, you know, it comes up in the health care reform stuff that, uh, you know, the frivolous lawsuits are a big uh, factor to um, uh, medical uh, malpractice rates and so on are, are a big contributor to health care costs. But there is a very interesting study. If you, I, I hope I'm, saying, I'm thinking of the right name, but I think it was Mark Galanter from the University of Wisconsin Law School, but he had posted some statistics. He studies this empirically about the number of tort claims filed you know, which would encompass uh, medical malpractice, product uh, defect, and injury, you know, personal injury of all kinds, and so on, and uh, accidents, you name it, and uh, as well as a uh, plain, plain, I think plaintiff's employment suit. Um, but but anyway, tort, torts as they're known have been declining significantly over the last several decades. Yet from the, what you hear publicly, you would think that these things are increasing, and these are you know some of the major costs on our system when they're not. Um, and the other thing of concern to me as a plaintiff's lawyer is that the solution that's proposed by this uh, public messaging, um, which is largely funded by corporations and think tanks, uh, the solutions proposed are to cut off civil liberties. It's to uh, weed out more claims, to uh, cut off people's class actions rights, to increase summary judgment in federal courts so the cases are kicked out before they reach trial. And, and these measures are not tailored to, to the purported problem. If the real problem was frivolous, like a boom in frivolous lawsuits, then an answer that's tailored to that actual problem would be to have the courts uh, better enforce rules that already exist for punishing frivolous lawsuits. And, and, and frankly, that's not happening. Courts are not, there's not a rash of court decisions saying there's too many frivolous lawsuits. The frivolous lawsuits thing is a messaging coming from a well-organized uh, corporate sector. Uh, and I, I don't want to get too, too off on that because, you know, I, in, in some circles that's kind of viewed as fringe talk. But it, when you represent people, that, that's the kind of thing you're dealing with because you see the, the frustrations of how it really is in representing individuals, which is uphill, and there's no such thing as an easy case, even if someone does have the smoking gun uh, proof, so to speak, there's still severe obstacles in the way. Um, but yet, the public messaging you hear is largely suggests the opposite. You know that it's an easy world for individuals, yeah. and you don't you don't find out it's not until you're injured. Michael, we're going to uh, pause a little bit for our first set of breaks, but first I want to suggest that 
Um, and that McDonald's documentary, I'm sure, uh, is a very big, big eye-opener. And one of the things that people out there don't necessarily realize, you know, there are decisions of law that come through these cases. There are policy, policy is enacted from a lot of these cases. A lot of the warning labels you likely see on beverage uh, cups and holders now come out of these cases. So it's not all about just one woman spilling coffee on herself and having a big payday. There's much more going on for the public good. Um, but we'll talk more about the public good and some employee uh, and labor rights things that Michael addresses as well as more about his screenplay after our first set of breaks. And our first commercial sponsor is the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme. If your marketing materials and slogans infringe on another's intellectual property rights, you should find out. Chicagoland attorney Nancy K. Ducharme brings big law firm experience and reputation to her intellectual property law firm, serving national corporate clients in the areas of trademark, copyright, internet law, and advertising law. When you need the right legal services to advance your creativity and guard against trademark infringement, call the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme at 708-444-7900. That number again is 708-444-7900, or you can visit nkdlaw.com. For more information. And our second commercial sponsor is Peak Marketing and Sales Incorporated. If you haven't yet met Mary Erlane, then you should listen up because she'll help you make more money. Mary's well known all over Chicagoland for her executive coaching and unique abilities in helping people connecting the dots and removing the barriers to business goals. Mary is the president of Peak Marketing and Sales Incorporated, and these renowned coaching and consulting services are available to businesses, associations, organizations, and teams who want to bring about measurable results. Call Mary today at 630-768-1422. That telephone number again is 630-768-1422. Or you can also visit Peak Marketing online at peakmsi.com. Our third commercial sponsor is your very own Law Publicist Communications. Law Publicist Communications is a legal marketing and public relations agency serving Chicagoland lawyers and business professionals. Many people hire us to write their marketing material, blog articles, and press releases we then use to promote and manage clients' webinars, events, and media placement. We are a full-service agency, and you'd be surprised how many ways we can help you. Give us a call at 312-505-2604 to see how we can put you on the map and position you to get more clients. The telephone number again is 312-505-2604. Now, getting back to our show, we want to quickly remind you, if you have a guest suggestion for Law Talk Radio broadcast, please drop us a note on our website or Facebook page. You can simply search for Law Talk Radio in Google and easily find us. Now, going back to our guest, we are talking today with Attorney Michael Brown from the Peterson, Burke, and Cross Law Firm, and we are talking about the title, Montage, Employee Rights with Michael Brown. Again, Montage is the screenplay that Michael uh, has authored, and Michael also authors for several other publications and focuses a lot on uh, legal rights for H-1B visa clients and also employees uh, all over the spectrum. So we were talking a little bit in our first segment about some of the challenges uh, facing plaintiffs in this day and age in litigation and some of the caps and reforms and challenges that uh, people get into the way of. And one of the things I'd like to I suggest that maybe, Michael, you can uh, talk a little bit about this. One of the experiences I had with working with so many of my solo clients are the the clients who have the the wonderful cases, um, very good cases, and a smoking gun, uh, for lack of a better, and they just can't afford the cost of expense. And they assume that a lot of law firms are paying 
all of these expenses. And I'll suggest that that was true in days past, but I've seen more and more firms tightening the purse strings on costs and expenses for cases they don't know are going to settle. It's a really big problem. What do we do about it? Uh, yeah, it's a, that's a tough one because it's. I see generally the the movement, which can't last forever, is uh, for, well, in the employment law, most employment attorneys represent employers most or all of the time. And so you know, people with expertise in a certain area, it's a, a limited am- amount who represent individuals, you know, mostly or, or uh, solely. And so there's a small sample of firms that are just available to represent an individual and then of that subset who has resources to advance costs, smaller still. And then, of course, to have the case that's good enough to get on, it, you know, it's a case with a smoking gun, but you might be dealing against, you know, competing more or less for attention of the firm against cases where they also have smoking guns. So how you deal with the problem, I, I can't see any short-term fix unless there were to be some sort of, uh, you know, federal or state grant money t- towards uh, legal services for individuals, but the trend's going against that as well, where whether it's, it's you know, some sort of grant, this is probably more of a, a public public organization, you know, like in Wisconsin, for example, we have Disability Rights Wisconsin, which is a publicly funded organization that represents individuals with disabilities. So, you know, if if organizations like that are grant eligible and grants were to increase, then maybe that makes a short-term difference in those organizations' ability to advance costs and or free legal services or contingency-based legal services with costs provided for individuals. Um, but most of the solution I could see would have to be more in the long-term strategic issue of um, law firm, or sorry, uh, law schools for starters, looking at this as an area of need for students to train towards, you know, to open their own practice, for example, or to practice individual rights laws, uh, law, and that they don't necessarily have to go with a big law firm, you know, that that's not necessarily a great goal. It's, it's one goal amongst others and has its advantages, but it's, it's not so much geared towards that goal. You know, the, the, the goal is to have on-campus interviews with the bigger firms and to represent corporate uh, employers. And that's, you know, that is one of other attractive alternatives, one attractive alternative being to be a plaintiff-side attorney that does class action work for the, the huge volumes of consumers and employees that are, are you know, suffer injuries of one type or another, um, and that could be lucrative cases if there are more people doing them and educated in them and and that had uh, the business expertise, because that's another issue, too. They don't do a good job in most law schools of teaching attorneys how to uh, to, to be a part of a smaller firm and to, to set up effective marketing and to uh, to uh, take advantage of, of like uh, efficiencies, you know, practice management software, legal research, et cetera, where you can be lean and still do some heavy lifting litigation-wise. Uh, there's not a lot of good training about that, so it's, it's almost like it's, I don't want to say an impossibility for people in law school, but it's not really on most people's radar that, gee, I could be a plaintiff's attorney. Gee, there are these people out there doing this, and they can make a, a decent living with it. Um, I just don't, I don't know if that's uh, promoted as much as um, the, the big firm sort of path. And I'm hoping I'm answering your question there. Those are the only things that can, that can come to mind because it, it's a huge problem being the, the lack of uh, – time, attorneys, and resources for individual rights cases. That's a big problem.
Oh, Nick? Okay, sorry about that. I was on mute. Um, <laughs> I start talking, I'm not even there. Um, I was just <laughs> suggesting that um, I, I've talked to several people on how to cure some of these issues, and one of the things that I've seen recently is an increase in the uh, thought of collaborative work with the client. And I've seen more of this where attorney and client share responsibilities and duties and costs. I can't remember where the article was that I just saw this, but I've seen a lot of uh, solo, a lot of solo attorneys. Again, I've seen them go up against big firms. I'm talking, you know, Jenner and Block. Why not? You know, go, I've seen it happen and they win. But it's when the clients have to be well organized organized. And I think that if it's a smaller shop, the client needs to have a more hands-on approach. I wouldn't necessarily put the client in charge of doing legal research. I've seen people do that. I know that you can get Westlaw at a lot of libraries now. I think that's a terrible idea to not do that. But, you know, have the client put their things in order, have them work on the medical records. I mean, how much of time sifting through and going through discovery? I mean, they know their case the best. They know what they're, what's going on. Um, so it seems like that's a good thing. Uh, but I will agree, as far as your comments about the law schools, I think more law schools need to be more proactive, and I heard a statistic of 60% um, at a few schools of, re of recent grads are assuming that they're going to go solo right out of the box. And I was talking on the phone with a guy from the UK this morning, and he still assumed uh, the guy. He still assumed that most people are going up the partner track, and those jobs just aren't there. A different legal markets have been hit harder, um, but. I think that a lot of schools are starting to uh, provide some of those resources. And I think that the ABA is a really wonderful place for people to, to look. And again, when you're knee deep in practice, you don't have time to find all of these you know, new ideas, and you just kind of have to search around. But once you do, I think that people will find that there are more things out there um, than there were, at least I graduated from law school in 2002, and there was, you know, the, the idea of going solo right out of school is just, you know, no way was anyone going to do that. Um, you, we graduated right about the same time. How many people did you know went solo? Oh, right out of law school. I mean, very yeah. few. No yeah. one. I, in fact, I can only think of one guy offhand who wasn't even in my class, but, uh, yeah, very few. Oh. Yeah, yeah. We're gonna pause now for a second set of breaks, and then we're gonna attack some of these more, um, you know, some of these problems here. There are a lot of issues here, and I hope that we can pin down some solutions. But I want to hear a little bit more about how clients can be uh, better prepared and also participate in the litigation process. Now, back to our commercials. Our fourth commercial sponsor is Jim Thompson of the Get Clients Now program. If you need more clients, seasoned attorney and marketing coach you should talk to. His name is Jim Thompson. No, he's not the former governor, but his name is Jim Thompson nonetheless. And he's a retired trial lawyer from Georgia, lives in the Chicagoland area now. He's got a great program called Get Clients Now. They help take crucial steps towards increasing your firm's revenues. This program employs various time-honored techniques to help you attract new business and encourage referrals. You can visit more uh, at their website, lawyersmarketingresource.com. You can also check out the testimonials there and see what people have to say about their services. Again, lawyersmarketingresource.com. You can also get in touch with Jim Thompson today by emailing him at jet at midwestconsultants.net. That's plural, jet at midwestconsultants.net. You can also call Jim directly at area code 708-785-4022. Again, that is 708-785-4022. Our fifth commercial sponsor of the day is credit damage expert, George Finder. Your credit score is a valuable asset. 
Credit damage expert George Finder is an expert who can put a dollar amount to damage to your credit score. Now, by learning to incorporate credit damage questions into your intake process, you and your staff can learn how to spot credit damage events worthy of retaining George Finder's credit damage analysis services. Available nationwide, credit damage expert Finder George Finder is available for consulting to damage to credit reputation. You can visit his website for more information at creditdamageexpert.com to learn more about George Finder and his expert services. Again, that's creditdamageexpert.com. Now, our sixth and final commercial sponsor for the day is the software and technology attorneys at Marcus Stephen Harris, LLC. Software licensing agreements, cloud computing, and software selection all fall on the desks of the attorneys at Marcus Stephen Harris, LLC. This international software technology and intellectual property law firm is based in Chicago and leads the way in software and technology law. Before entering private practice, Principal Marcus Harris worked at Senior Corporate Counsel at SSA Global Technologies, a global software vendor. Marcus also worked in the Legal Contracts Department at SAP Technologies, drafting and negotiating hundreds of technology-related agreements with SAP's Fortune 500 customer base. Today, Marcus leads a talented team who are ready to help you navigate legal and business issues in software, technology, and intellectual property. Call Marcus Stephen Harris today at 312-263-0570. Their website, with more information, is mshtechlaw.com. That's again, mshtechlaw.com. Telephone number again, 312-263-0570. Now, getting back to our programming, we want to remind our listeners to please share our broadcast links in your social networks. Many of our people find our shows in their friends' Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn pages. We've had a great response from people worldwide on different shows that we were covering, and it's because people participated in good social media and shared the program. So we do appreciate your clicking the share button. Now, back to our program uh, with Michael Brown. Michael, we talked so a little bit about you know your your screenplay and some of the issues here. What are some things? Can you give us some teasers? Um, you know, what happens? I, I know it's kind of uh, early to ask for some teasers there, but what type of things do you want to tell us about more about the screenplay? Sure. Um, well, in the screenplay, initially the the doctor is turned down by the employee rights attorney, um, which may be of surprise to people based on an expectation of the legal system. And you know, you would think that someone with a smoking gun would have their case just taken up off the bat. But in this case, he's turned down because, for a real world reason, that I turn down a lot of clients that have decent cases that there there did not appear to be damages as a result of the employer's actions. Um, in this case, the doctor picked up a new job. Uh, he's a neurosurgeon, and so in, and he picked up a new gig as a neurosurgeon after being fired, and it looks like he's going to land on his feet. And so the back pay lost as a result of the termination. There's not much difference in pay between the jobs or time between them. So the attorney says, you know, sorry, I know this is a really bad situation, but you've, you're, you haven't had a significant financial loss. It's a no-brainer. Don't sue and spend the next several years of life, you know, pursuing this case. But then uh, the 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 uh, doctor proceeds to make uh, a public statement in a, a legislative proceeding about his bad treatment, um, and this was done almost at, at the dare of the attorney, saying, "Look, if, if you if this is really about the principal for you, because the attorneys used to hearing that from declined clients all the time, if it's really about the principal and not the money, we'll go talk to your legislature because uh, tell them to give discrimination laws more teeth, and he does." And so he's in a legislative proceeding uh, lobbying on his own behalf, essentially. And it's this step that really pisses off the corporation, which in turn takes a couple of real-world real, real world, uh, 
adverse actions with a doctor. There's something called the National Practitioner Data Bank Report um, or NPDB report that uh, it's a national database of uh, kind of a black mark against a doctor if they have a disciplinary uh, issue or uh, arguable malpractice issue of a certain type against them. It can be reported to this data bank, which is queried by future employers. So this is a retaliatory maneuver that his former employer takes after he, you know, takes this action and go into the legislature. As a result of them taking, you know, this shot across the bow, his new employer fires him, and then he's in a position all of a sudden where he's he's lost all his income. At that point, his case is taken up, and that's just one of the examples along the way of like a real-world uh, means of retaliation that's within the, the powers of a corporation to do just out of spite in, in this instance. And I, I guess I won't go too far into it beyond to say that um, at the end of the day, this, as events are further and further dug into, there's worse and worse conduct um, behind it all um, that implicates not only the, some of the doctor's own behaviors and how he did not react well to some of the sexual misconduct he originally had seen, but also there's issues with the attorney himself, the plaintiff's attorney, a prior job he had, a prior class action he had had against the same healthcare conglomerate that gets roped into this. And in the log line that you read, you know, that um, the attorney ultimately has to come to grips with his own uh, vulnerability. that that comes into the mix is that that's something I feel as a plaintiff's attorney that if I'm deposing an HR director or something about something bad or discriminatory they had done, it also comes to mind. You know, I wouldn't want to be deposed about a, a college party or two. You know, and and, and you got to think about the behavior. And none of us have uh, conduct that's beyond a reproach in all aspects of life. And that that's what happens at the end. Of the, this movie is that this plaintiff's attorney comes face to face with something he doesn't want to deal with, and that's part of the obstacle of, of uh, I guess, in the movie's view of being a plaintiff's attorney in its truest sense is to acknowledge your own uh, shortcomings and not be too righteous, even if you're doing what you feel is right, you know, against your employer, not grandstanding, just more taking on the difficult tasks that needs to be done. Um, and it also along the way, you know, what film would be complete without a, a mentor type? But there, there was a former mentor to this attorney at his prior law firm job, and both of them had lost their jobs as a result of a, an event that had occurred in relation to this class action. Um, and that also comes to light between the two and is, was a source of uh, discontent that they're trying to, to work through. So I hope I'm giving enough of a teaser without... Uh, given anything away but it's uh, you know i think the dialogue in the movie is is decent i think from people who have read my script so far they found it uh, a good read you know most people have been pretty stuck to it and followed the story and felt it uh, pretty compelling and interesting to them Um, but getting it read that's a whole different uh, challenge you know people are, are busy with their days so and i am too so promoting this has to take on you know a different um a timeline, you know, when I get time to do that. Yeah, it's an animal all out of itself. It looks like we have a caller on the line. I'm not sure if this caller, uh, you can press 1 if you're there. I'm just going to bring this person live and see if we have a caller. If caller does not want to make a comment, caller may remain silent. Caller, go ahead if you're a caller and have a comment. I think our guy is just listening. Okay. 
that caller appears to be just – I never know. Uh, okay. I always ask. Yes. So, yeah, again, people who do have, have a question and are listening and want to call, you can listen either online or uh, by telephone. But, again, the caller number, 917-889-9732, and then pressing option one brings you in the queue uh, for me to bring you live. So um, let's talk a little bit, Michael, about the process of, of getting uh, a book published. Is this something that you – you know, as you went through the process, it, you know, it's quite different um, from traditional legal publishing with trade journals and, and whatnot. How's your experience been so far? Well, I recently had completed, it, it's fairly recent that I can completed the script for myself, and my work thus far has been on having it reviewed by people who I know, who know people in uh, film production. Um, there's there's a fellow I know that has had a script uh, purchased. Uh, it w- was to be like a, a big picture movie, and in his case it was purchased, and it was good for him as a screenwriter, but it's kind of been sitting you know, and unmade with the, the production company that got it. But right now it's been, for me, educating and networking you know, with people that, you know, just floating my script or log line to people with ideas and getting more suggestions. But so it's um, you know, in a, right now that's where I'm at, networking with people who have knowledge of of the process and seeing talking to someone who knows someone who has suggestions. But among suggestions I've had are to enter the film and or the script and uh, screenwriting contests, and I do plan to do that, and I've done some research on that, and that will likely be a next step. I, there's nothing that's immediately pending with the contests I'm looking at, but there are a few coming up, and I'll do that. Um, so that's, you know, that's that's the, the long stretch to in, in doing that. Of course, it, it takes one person's attention, the right person's attention, if to get a thumbs up or down, and that would be great if that happened. So as part of, too, you know, obviously appearing on the show is for anyone interested in looking at it, you know, they're free, free to contact me, or there's probably a way I can post a link to the to the script. I imagine I have an excerpt of the script in my head, but if there's a way I can post, I'm happy to do that with along with the show. Wonderful. We now, now we, now, and I of course wish you all the best and success. I know how much work goes into a lot of that um, in getting published. One of my questions I'd like to ask you before we have about five minutes for our last break. You're talking a little bit about reform in the legal system, and it's a very difficult thing. A lot of people have thrown their hands up and said, "How, you know, why does it take?" You know why? Why, for example, do we still have to drive to court for a status conference when that could be accomplished over the phone? Why does this take so long or so much? And you know, a lot of people who are working a lot in conform in reform are talking about cost savings to clients, consumer confidence, consumer expectation, and a lot of the collaborative process and you know, collaborative work environments. Um, what are your thoughts on reform as far as how to get things done um, on a Main Street level? Do you think that that's a better place for us to start, or should we be pounding our fists and shaking them at our legislators? Where do you think legal reform needs to happen first? Uh, Well, it it depends on – there are several areas of definite – improvement to be made and you know part of what you mentioned there i agree is a big area is is just efficiency you know there's still a lot of paper in courtrooms there's still a lot of in-person appearances where a teleconference or maybe even a skype type conference you know video conference would would work just as well 
but then there's a certain line where you want to draw, you know, if you want to have a virtual trial, and a lot of people are going to say no to that, including me. But um, there are a lot of things where it could be more efficient, and uh, this being done to various extents, you know, the federal courts, for example, are, are all electronic, and, and it's much more efficient to have a case in that regard in federal court. Um, however, in federal court, there's sometimes, you know, the local federal judge um, in my area, I think, is a very reasonable and, and um, good human being, and it'd be nice to have more interpersonal interaction, you know, just to kind of get us get that personal sense, you know, where parties are at and the judges at, and just to communicate in person is, is nice. Um, so you miss a little of that in, in federal court. Um, but um, overall, you know, it, it's a more efficient system, I believe, than, than state. However, state tends to have, courts tend to have more, uh, ability, you know, there's more diversity and ability to, I think, you know, from my own perspective, to to experiment a bit, you know, in, in Wisconsin and Dane County. I remember seeing, I wish I remember the judge's name, but uh, actually I don't think he, he was in Dane County, but a county around that area where he was really kind of pioneering the use of technology in his courtroom in terms of dictation, having microphones placed throughout the court and having uh, the you know, transcripts basically created from that process as compared to uh, uh, employed, you know, stenographer to go through it all. Um, so uh, there, there are, like, different measures, and there is experimentation taking place to make things more efficient. I think a lot of the answers are already known. It's just more of kind of accelerating the progress, you know, and kind of mimicking other industry in terms of just taking advantage of efficiencies. I mean, in terms of attorneys, I can say that, I think the billable hour in large part has served, not consciously, I think a lot of attorneys are not intending to be slower, for example, but when, you, when you're when you billing by the hour, there's not so much of a fire in your belly, you know, to adopt case management software and make things go ultra fast or, you know, take advantage of, you know, legal form software, automatic form generation, or, you know, whatever the technology might be if you're paid uh, by the hour. And I would like, from a consumer or client standpoint, I would like there to be reform in terms of having attorneys. It seems to me it's like these untouchable areas of, you know, attorneys can just charge as they want or, you know, bill by the hour or whatever um, it, with, you know, oversight from the ethics rules of, of the state bar, the ABA in terms of model rules and so on. But from a consumer standpoint, I think some grassroots type of lobbying, because it seems to be dissatisfaction with, like, I don't know how much my attorney is going to charge me, you know, that both for individuals and companies. And so maybe to have some disclosure requirements of attorneys to say, you know, on day one of representation, you have to state, uh, how, you know, how many of these types of cases have you usually handled? What's the range of fees you would expect to be incurred on the hour based on your experience, you know, from lower end uh, to higher end? You know, again, with no guarantee of what a fee is going to be if it's hourly and speculative. But to have those sorts of disclosure um, requirements, you, you know, and I'm just brainstorming here, but something to make it more apparent to the client because I think a lot of client dissatisfaction is that they hear an hourly value of, you know, 200 bucks an hour, 800 bucks an hour, whatever is being charged, and then they they kind of come up with their own expectation of how many hours it should take, and they almost always lowball that. And so I think there's a lot of dissatisfaction and loss of value, frankly, if, you know, that's that's a scenario. Um, whereas on the, the plaintiff side, I didn't see as big an issue where plaintiff's attorneys more so charge or have a contingency arrangement, so at least you know it's, it's one-third or whatever the contingency value is, and you know the percent. Um, but there, there are always things, though, that can be improved, I think, in terms of disclosure to clients of you know, how much experience do you have with this type of case, how do they usually go, how much do they usually cost, whether it's attorney's fees or um, 
uh, out-of-pocket costs. And I don't think it's a good enough answer for attorneys just to say, well, you know, I can't tell. It's speculative. Well, it, it is. There's always some some amount of speculation involved, but also as an attorney gains experience with a certain type of transaction, which they should be if they're practicing law in that area, then they also know a certain range, and I think they should be required to, to document and communicate that to the client, and also to be at least held accountable to that estimate at the end of the day so the client has something to show the attorney. Like you said, this typically cost 20 grand and here I'm sitting at 80 grand and we're years away from resolution. Yeah, I agree and I think that one of the problems that I always I I speak a lot of legal reform in the family law, you know, group. Those are my people. I come out of that group and I'm you know doing a lot with the collaborative issues again because I think you know in years past where there was a house that was sold, money put in escrow, attorney's fees got paid, but it's just not that reality anymore. And now we're working with people's actual incomes and it's a different story at least for some practice areas. I want to uh, highlight um and note a couple uh, things with changing within the system. Um and I've got this example here. When I was in, back in law school, I did a clerkship with my uncle, was a judge in Langlade County. J, uh, judge James Jansen was on the bench for almost 25 years. And this is back in 1999. He had a television, like a TV monitor in his courtroom and um, a whole thing to bring the inmates in from the Sally Well, So they really have to. It was all video conference. Now, compare and contrast that to my, my home county court of Cook County here in Illinois is one of the largest uh, – counties for law and one of the largest court systems i think in the world and we're still writing orders out on with carbon copy papers i see lawyers coming in from other jurisdictions and are aghast that uh that they have to write these orders out with these in triplicate where some of our other suburban counties everything is on everything's done online it's all nice and very easy but it's just these systems are so big and people just don't understand how much it takes to change uh you know and adapt some of these new policies just getting cases and uh, you know, calendars and dockets online has been a tremendous accomplishment for many. A couple other things I'd like to highlight on what you said, Michael, um, with the expectations of setting expectations with the client. And I will suggest for many things, I do think that some younger attorneys at lower billable rates may be appropriate. But just like in your screenplay, it's so important to have co-counsel or have an of-counsel relationship. I always talk about that in my attorneys in transition column that. If you're going to go solo out of the box, and there's all sorts of ABA comments of people who have talked about this, find someone else to work with because there are unknown unknowns all over the place. You may be flying fine for most of the time, but then you might get knocked over the head with something you don't even expect because you don't know any better. Isn't that true? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more with everything you just said. And some of it you learned the hard way. You know, fortunately now I've come to to grips with, you know, I'm still a younger attorney. I, I had my own cases for quite some time, but if I have a case that I haven't done something with before, I just I get co-counsel who's done it many times over, you know, and then I work with them. And sometimes it's a case where I'm still doing the vast majority of the work and I show them the work and they're like, yeah, no problem, you know, why are you asking me? But then there are other times where they're like, well, did you know about this, this, or this? And it just never occurs to you, you know. And if, if you have a chance to avoid mistakes, you know, other than, you know, a lot of areas of life, it's good to get to learn by mistakes, and that cements in the process. You do it right the second time. But when you're practicing law, it's really good to get the assistance of someone else so you don't have to make the mistake the first time because it's not just your own 
thing you're dealing with. You're dealing with someone else's it's money. Someone, yeah, someone's liberty, someone's life, so property yeah. interest. Yeah. We're going to pause quickly for our last set of um, law practice management resources, and then we'll get back to finish out our show. But these, uh, I'm going to talk about the American Bar Association's law practice management section, and also Law Bulletin Publishing Company. And I'm, I will suggest again, there are resources out there for young practitioners who do take on uh, some of these cases. First, from the ABA's law practice management section, when American Bar Association members join the law practice management section, they receive a free subscription to Law Practice, a bi-monthly magazine dedicated to helping legal professionals master all the aspects of the business of law practice. Now, there are, all, there are also the publications you get with your membership as Law Practice Today, which is a monthly webzine bringing you the most current information and trends in the legal industry. Also, it has anecdotes developed from professionals in the field of law. Now, also, they have Law Practice News, the bi-monthly newsletter, which also has more interest and uh, in information about the law practice practice management section, the ABA, and the legal profession. Now, I want to highlight with law practice management, I mean marketing, management, technology, and finance. All sorts of resources there from the ABA's law practice management section. Next, Law Bulletin Publishing Company. When you subscribe to the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin and the Chicago Lawyer Magazine, you'll receive up-to-date legal news from Chicago and around Illinois. You can also check out the Law Bulletin blog, Attorneys in Transition, which offers advice and tips for lawyers going through a career transition. It also hosts a monthly career seminar for lawyers in flux in their careers. I am one of the weekly advice columnists published by the Attorneys in Transition site, and I do hope that you stop by and leave your comments at attorneysintransition.com. Now, back to our show. Again, we want to ask people to do share our programming and leave any suggestions you may have on our Facebook page. You can find that simply by searching for Law Talk Radio on Facebook. Now, back to our show. Michael, uh, one of the things I just thought about, Law Bulletin Publishing Company, right there you have an example. They published this black line trial call, and... Oftentimes, it's kind of like an automatic status date. It sets your trial for a date, and if you don't go, you get DWP'd. Well, there's suburban practitioners who don't even know that that's going that that exists. So again, it's just, it's so important to saddle up with someone else. Um, what are some? We have about five minutes left here. If you want, Michael, to highlight some more um, things you might want to tell um, a client out there, things you might want to tell. What do you think is helpful that people don't know? You know, how would you prepare people? What you know, this we were talking about this grocery store psychology, and everyone hears about the big McDonald's case where the woman spills a coffee and gets all this money. Uh, there's so much we highlighted earlier in the show. We don't have time for all of it, but what are a couple of things that if you could tell uh, the average person walking the street to help them understand your practice area, what would those be? Well, uh, as far as my practice area, I think it's very important that people know for an employment law claim. It's just critical whether or not someone has suffered financial damages as a result to whatever happened. Um, that's that's the first point. And I'd say, too, for attorneys starting out that I kind of learned the hard way is that it, unless, an, you know, if an employer takes a bad action against someone and say it's a form of harassment or it's just making life absolutely miserable at work, but those actions do not cost the person income or back pay, you know, in terms of damages on the on the tail end, it's usually not a worthwhile claim because employment law claim because if you have to put your time your own time as a individual or money or risk into a law and also reputation there's all sorts of stress all sorts of investments that go into a legal case you want to make sure that whatever you're going to recover from that is more than what you put in and if someone doesn't have financial loss that's significant then they shouldn't invest significant amount of time and money and this is for civil claims you know about 
a notion of principle or something like that. That's just my own belief. And something I see a lot of younger employee rights attorneys do is focus more on the merits of a case, like, wow, this person called me up and they had this, this, or this happen, and that's just wrong, and so on. But at the, end, if at the end of the day, the person didn't lose money, and they pay that young attorney five grand before all of them figure out that they're not going to win five grand from the case, or ten, or twenty. That's that's a bad thing for clients. You know that they're not aware of that, and often it's done at unintentionally, is just or through a lack of experience or or just you know lack of forethought or whatever the case might be. So that's a big thing for employee employment right issues is is really the importance of damages. You know, if I could think of one thing that's really important up front before you kind of look at the merits of things or spend a ton of time on it um, or money on it. But the other thing, in the broader sense, as far as what people on the street should know, it's that our, our civil rights are under attack. You know, I mean, it's the legal system is becoming less and less accessible. There are all these forces to keep people out of courtrooms, uh, ranging from uh, arbitration agreements that you don't even know you've signed, and then there's a recent Supreme Court case, a Concepcion, that says you can't, uh, that arbitration agreements can take away people's class actions rights. So you, you have not only have to go to an arbitrator of the the, the, the credit card company or the, the uh, uh, cell carrier, whoever is choosing, uh, who does repeat business with that entity, you, you have to go to their arbitrator and you cannot bring a, a class action claim. And so the economics of a lot of those claims just fall apart because no attorneys are willing to represent people for a $500 claim for you know, tens of thousands of dollars worth of legal work. Um, and, and so there are just these things. It, you know, I mentioned earlier, like summary judgment and, and federal courts have weed out a lot of claims. Uh, there's a Twombly uh, type of case law that we dealt claims at the beginning of cases that has more specific pleading requirements it gets a lot of cases kicked out of court and there are just these forces that that uh, stand or increasing forces to stand between people and the right to a jury trial and then on the back end there are these forces limits on punitive damages caps and so on that that take away the the value of what people can win when they've when they've been seriously injured mcdonald's documentary you know hot coffee goes a lot into the realities of those cases including including the fact that the McDonald's victim herself had suffered uh, severe burns. I can't recall if they're second-degree or third-degree burns, but to her, her genital region. You know, I mean, very, very serious stuff. And also that McDonald's had received hundreds of complaints about coffee brewed above industry standards before this incident had occurred with her. So this wasn't just some random thing or opportunistic thing. They knew, and they yet, knew. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, but you hear public, and, and as a plaintiff's attorney, I'm like, yeah, of course they knew. Uh, that's just my assumption when I see a scenario like that. But yet the public story, this is known for an opportunistic plaintiff. You know? It's just and difficult. It, we got we to gotta wrap here. We're going to run out of time. Let's get some information on how people, I want to wish you good luck on this script and getting everything published. And can you give us some more information on how we can uh, get in touch with you offline? This is Michael Brown again. Yes, well, you can contact me at 920-858, it's okay to give a number, 2265. That number again? 920-858-2265. And your blog again. My, well... My blog would not be for purposes of no, not uh, for this, but, play, but yeah, but just correct, yeah, for for work-related uh, blog uh, employee rights or H-1B rights issues. Uh, the blog is employeerightswisconsin.com. dot com. All right, and wonderful. the other and the other is h1blegalrights.com. dot com. Michael, thank you for being our guest today. Thank you for your time. Oh, thank you, Nick. I really appreciate it.
All right. We'd also like to thank our commercial guests and sponsors. We'd like to thank, number one, advertising copy and intellectual property attorney, Nancy K. Ducharme. Secondly, executive coach, Mary Erlane of Peak Marketing and Sales Incorporated. Third, law firm and business marketing and public relations agency known as Law Publicist Communications and ALRPRA division. We'd also like to thank attorneys, uh, attorney Jim Thompson of the Midwest Consulting Group and the Get Clients Now program, followed by credit damage expert, George Finder, and the software and technology attorneys at Marcus Stephen Harris, LLC. By way, again, of disclaimer, again, this is a general information program. Advice shared on the show does not constitute legal advice. Communication with attorneys on the show does not give rise to attorney-client relationships. Law Talk Radio does not necessarily endorse all of the opinions expressed by guests. All callers remain confidential and rights to this broadcast are reserved. Again, your Law Talk Radio episodes are programmed to entertain you and bring you our attorney and non-attorney audiences, tips, tools, and practice-area information you can use to be better informed practitioners and consumers of legal services. With guest listeners located worldwide, we appreciate the opportunity to use this socially networked radio program to bring people together and share collective intelligence. Again, this is Nick Augustine, the law publicist for your Law Talk Radio, and I thank you. Bye.